Hey there, my name is Dean Leverton and I'm the host of Upstanders, a stand-up podcast series. We have conversations with the dream chasers and change makers who deserve to be heard. In this episode, I chat with Jared White about the whys of life. We talked a lot about the whys of everything, including why Jared thinks that Vince Vaughn would play him in a movie of his life, why remembering our past is vital for our future, why he parties as a means of release from the heavy emotional toll of his job, and why he builds a tribe around him that allows him to be who he wants to be. Jared has just completed his PhD in psychology, having written his thesis on how different cultural groups deal with trauma. He's also an active community leader, pioneering game-changing mental health projects such as the life of others, which you'll hear more about in this episode. We laughed a lot, but we also got real deep about some very important topics. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did interviewing. Jared White, welcome to the Stand Up Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It is good to be here. So yeah. I, um, we bumped into each other at a JCCV event. We did. A couple of weeks ago. Yes, it was good to see you there. You so were talking about March Living. Friendly face, yeah. I was talking about Stand Up. Mm. Um, I feel like you stitched me up a bit in, you were talking <laughs> and you referred to me and... Um, and I feel like that was just a deliberate stitch up. It so. was. It was. I thought it was a pretty clever play, just to uh, show how overarching much a living can be. Just the way it can consume. <laughs> There's someone in the room here. <laughs> <laughs> There's someone in the room here that's actually been on March of Living for. See that guy that's doing great work? Yeah, he's from us. So it was just a name couple, dropping. A bit of name dropping, yeah. yeah just showing up. So I'm going to get uh, straight into it here. <laughs> okay. Speaking of March of Living, um, so. You're, you've been a, you, you've been um, a Madrico March Living. You're mm. now going as an educator. You're in the March Living well, world. The educator, no? like not so much. I mean, my 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 strength is not necessarily the education, but more like the leader of the delegate kind of thing. Because okay. we're going to have other educators there now. Gotcha. Very involved in March Living. Yeah, love it. Um, <clears throat> PhD in psychology. Um, lives of others blog slash website, which we're going to get to all these individual things. Okay. But then there's, there's there's complexity added to the character. There's um, Ajax footy player, boy's boy. Um, <laughs> so there's no stereotypical makeup here with Jared White. Um, I want to know, if you had a bio written about you, <laughs> it can't include the things I just mentioned. So mm. it can't just be rattling off CV things. Yeah. You don't fit some stereotypical character. How would you describe yourself when it, you couldn't easily be characterized as a particular thing that maybe other people could? Uh, I've thought about, um, you know, this before in terms of question, <clears throat> what what kind of movie would my life be and who would play it? Okay, um, give me that one. Um, <clears throat> I'd say it's a hopeless romantic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's because I'm hopelessly romantic. And be played by Vince Vaughn because uh, Vince Vaughn's tall <laughs> like I am and he can talk very fast like I like to talk sometimes. Um, but in all seriousness, I think, um, besides the things you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, like uh, my, my boys, I love my friends. Uh, I think, I think just community as well around me, having people around me is something that I really relish. And so this, the, the sort of makeup of, of Jared White is a little bit of a, a people's people, person okay. that likes people. Okay. Yeah. And so each of those things that I mentioned, um, the thing they've got in common is like community, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. For me, I mean, I used to say my spirit animal was a wolf, 
which it's not because I don't have any aggressive tendency <laughs> in me. And they, but the reason I used to say that is because they, they are a very, um, they, they hunt in packs, right. you know, and I love having people around me. I just, I just love people. That's, that's what the connection is. So a question that I was going to get to later and which I asked Sounds most so of my... lame, but it's so true. <laughs> no, I, I, it's a good answer. I was just for the benefit of our audience. You didn't get these questions before. No. But I did warn you there'd be some questions there you might. But so I think you yeah. know that one quite well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, but oh, it's going to be tough. I, I was going to ask you a question later, which I ask most of our guests, if not all of them, which is um, this notion of sort of who's in your tribe. Right. So, uh, you know, your tribe being those people in your, in your close circle, your allies who you feel like really bring out the best in you um, and who are really part of your inner circle of community. Uh, who, who help you become your best you. Uh, you don't have to name names or anything like that, but, right. but who who is in that tribe for you? Who are the type of people that make that up? Yeah, I mean, naming names would be, you know, um, unfair, but a shout-out to my housemates, Josh Belufkin and Ricky Khan. You can't leave them out. Um, they're great people. They bring me up. But I think um, the thing is that my group of uh, friends certainly bring an amazing quality out in me. They're fun, caring, supportive people that, um, you know, I've been friends with since school. And the reason we're still all mates is because there is this strong love between us and that love is really special. And it helps us be the kind of people that want to be just comfortable in who we are. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about this group of people that I'm friends with. So there isn't a necessary stereotype in, in yeah. our friendship group, but we, we all kind of do our own thing. In terms of the other tribes, I, th- I see I've got different places. You know, like I said, I think <clears throat> it's I love people, so it's it's about trying to mix with different people. Um, there are the intellectual p- people that I try and engage with. There are the people that I play sport with. There are the people that I go and have fun out with, you know, and, and all those people bring something different out in you. So for me, it's just about trying to get that eclectic mix, um, which, you know, like, let's face it, I, you know, I'm, I'm still mates with the same guys I was mates with. So I wouldn't say I'm completely eclectic, but I do try and have people in different pockets. Come into different points in your life. Yeah, and yeah, different yeah, things. yeah. I think what you said as well about um, your friendship group, helps to sort of answer that first question as well. Because I think the question that I asked uh, at about those maybe seeming contradictions in characteristics might be, I guess, more exaggerated if the people who um, you became when you were this boy's boy footy player meant you couldn't also be the same person you are when you're, um, you know, uh, March a living... Yeah, I think everyone has different sides to them. And, you know, some people will, will be like, no, I have to be this one person the whole time. But it's important to be able to adapt to different environments and be a bit of a chameleon. I think um, at the end of the day, you know, when it, if you, you've got some core values you keep, no matter whether you're playing footy or you're speaking on a stand-up podcast, you know, as long as those core values are there, then you can be different people. What know? are those core values? <clears throat> like, What is it that Ooh. brings you back, centers you, Ooh. that makes you think... Uh. I'm going That's off. A tough question. <laughs> what are those core values? Um, oh, okay. Here we go. Well, I watched a documentary the other day. Oh my god, this is going to sound so lame again. But I'm just, I'm just <laughs> going to put it out there. I watched a documentary the other day. It was called Happy. It was a, a really nice documentary going around what makes people happy from around the world. Where can people find the documentary? Uh, you can find it on Netflix. It's a 2011 documentary. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the best place. Probably Put Locker as well. Maybe YouTube. If you search YouTube, it could be there. I don't know. Have a search. Um, but this documentary goes to Okinawa, goes to the Netherlands, it goes to LA, and go, checks out all these places. And one of the things they find is <clears throat> um, that the things that make people happy, A, are friendships and community. 
Um, and then, uh, and then emotions that we don't actually talk about that much as emotions, but things like love, which we obviously do talk about a lot, but other emotions like gratitude and compassion. And for me, I think as long as I have those values, whether I'm playing footy, mm. you know, I can, I can, if I love my teammates, it's a fantastic yeah. thing for my game, which I don't really play anymore. So, you know, I'm moving on to different spheres, but, um, <clears throat> when I work, when I'm, uh, which hey, is, we'll as a psychologist, Jair, footy show. Yeah. <laughs> talking up that I'm sure this is exactly what they're looking for <laughs> on Jair. Um, then, you know, you, you, you move to, um, your lives of others and then you move to March or living and all those values sort of come into play quite clearly. So I think. You know, as long as I keep those values, then, you know, it's important to be able to adapt it to different situations. We, um, I've listened to a lot of people on various podcasts, particularly a Tim Ferriss podcast, where he asks people if there are specific habits or routines they have throughout their day, um, or maybe even just, um, you know, deep rooted into their life. I really do love Ferriss. I do like Ferriss. Yeah. Um, podcast so host just like me. He, um, and he asked them basically, what what routines or habits do you have in your life that make sure that you come back to those core values? So you mentioned a couple of really interesting ones, compassion and gratitude. <clears throat> Are there things that, is it just so intrinsic to the way you think or do you have to do specific things or bring yourself back every now and then consciously to to think about them? Well, I think the, 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 the I mean, I'm blessed because the job that I have, it, it requires me to do that. You know, as a psychologist, if you're not compassionate, you're not going to go very far. So there are certain things I do in my daily life that I have to um, exude those sort of qualities. In terms of rituals, I don't really have any rituals, but again, like even seeing my mates reminds yeah. me of this sort of, you know, compassion. that's why I love seeing them a lot, compassion and love and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, even <clears throat> go, making sure I make time to go out. Um, if you go out to, you know, certain parties or um, even you go to certain festivals like a rainbow, you see all this sort of love and compassion and they, they're sort of like, they're not necessarily daily rituals, but they're rituals throughout my Part year. Part of your life, yeah. That remind me that these things are important. Cool. One of the things that we talk about on the Stand Up Podcast is that uh, the people we interview, um, we, we believe, are, are change makers, but also dream chasers. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm really sort of fascinated from your point of view is that you've been studying for, must be almost a decade now. How long is it? Ten years. Yeah, right. So, and Two years gap, but, you know, ten years. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a long time to not sort of be at full-time work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and... That sort of says to me, you know, you, you re obviously really wanted to do something. You're, you're pursuing that. Um, was there ever was there a time or a point where you saw all your mates going off into doing professional work, making you know full time salaries, throwing on a suit or whatever, and you were yeah. like, "Shit, I'm still going to Monash Clayton." Like, and and the shit, I'm still a student. Shit, I'm still one of the only people in the library <laughs> after ten years. Like, yeah, right. So yeah. is it like was there a point where you were just like, nah? This is it. I'm, I got to get out of here. Uh, yeah, every day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, like it happens at different times. You know, I mean, there's there's some amazing things about studying which I will wish I could do forever. You know, I hope to be able to study in some form forever because, you know, when you study, you run your own schedule, you do your own thing. And I saw my mates going off to work nine to five and having to, you know, work for the man or sometimes do enter the rat race. And I kind of was afraid of that as yeah. well. There was that was almost like an instigator to stay studying. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, there's other reasons why I stayed studying, but um, I think one of the great things about studying is that it, you can be flexible yeah. and you are always learning, which is um, 
great. You don't have the responsibility mm. to work nine to five, which is a kind of a nice thing. Why did you decide that you wanted to go for such a high level qualification? Like, why weren't you just like, yeah, I'll do my master's, I'll be a psychologist. What was it about a PhD that you thought, I need this or I want this? Um, I think, uh, well, psychology is set up in a way, I think, partly where if you want to work wherever, you need to get these sort of qualifications. Um, it's very, it's just a very competitive field. Um, but beyond that, I think for me, it was just my, like you said, there's kind of like a little bit of ambition, just not, not wanting to sort of settle in, not saying that settling is stopping because there's plenty of things you can do for me. Uh, there was a point, there was a point where I thought I'm, I'm done here. Mm. It was for, it was before I started the doctorate. I was, I led martial living actually. And I got, I was thinking of actually going and teaching in formal education at Bialik. And then I was like, maybe I should just be a teacher. You know, I'm going to have a great time being a teacher. But the thing that, one of the things that stopped me was just going, I think I'd feel a little bit after a while like I want to do more there's just I think for me it's just this concept that that I've got this schema that I've got of I want to do more I always want to do more there's always something else to do and I knew that if I completed this um, doctorate I'd actually give myself an opportunity to do more right and so it's just this drive yeah it's this drive to to just open up as much for me as possible give myself a room kind of thing what is it about psychology in particular is there something about the human mind or is there something like that? Do you remember a point ever where you were like, psychology is it? I'm just so fascinated by the human mind and what people Yeah, do. the amazing thing is it wasn't straight away. Like I fell into psychology because I didn't know what else to do after school and I thought I'll do arts because I like arts and then psych is sort of the only thing you can do in arts that is a job other than, you know, being an academic, yeah. which wasn't that necessarily appealing. So I fell into psych, but then... I don't know whether it picked me or I picked it, but, uh, you know, the more I progressed with psych, it wasn't so much necessarily the mind. You know, dreams are cool and Freud always had some enigma around him and that kind of stuff is nice. But for me, the more I progressed, the more I realized this is, this is what I do for a living. What we're doing right now, I do for a living. Mm. You know, I sit, I have a conversation with someone and I get paid. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's like, you know, that's a, a wonderful thing that I get, you know, my thing is people, I get to connect with someone for my job. Like yeah. I, I couldn't have asked for something better. I think also, you know, you, there's a lot of reflection that's required in psychology and, and I do reflect a lot, you know, I think a lot about myself, about why I do things, why I act in certain ways. And sometimes, you know, it almost kills conversations because <laughs> I, I ask questions that no one really wants to answer. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's terrible. Don't try it on a first date because you will send many people packing. Like there's some stories here that I'll ask. Oh, uh, yeah, the, let's leave them. <laughs> the, turn the microphone off. Yeah. But I do want to ask, um, I do want to ask about... Whether when you're in those um, those intense conversations for work, yeah. uh, we mentioned before we started recording that it does require you to to speak to somebody else to talk about any tough cases or something that might be taking an emotional toll on you. So supervision, right? In psychology, and imagine yeah. it takes it, there is this heavy emotional burden that you can take with yeah. you if you don't handle it properly. Yeah. How do you treat that? Oh. Um... Well, I mean, I've got one answer that I'm not sure I want to say here, um, <laughs> but it's a really good release. Um, but the others are, um, you know, the, I mean, I think, okay, I can, I can be vague in this sense, you know. I mean, making sure you have time to sort of release in yeah. ways. Um, that might be going out and partying. 
That might be making sure you you hang out with mates at certain times. That might be exercising in different ways, which is really important. So you're saying these things. So for example, partying. Yeah. Is that something that so you just your mind is completely away from that? Like yeah, I mean you're in you're in the moment. You you detach from you you detach. Um, I think there's there's a a funny thing I'm learning about myself, which is that also like I'm you know again this chameleon type of thing. You can be different people. Mm. You don't have to be the same exact person in every every situation. You know as soon as I get out of work I kind of become a little bit more jovial a little bit more playful a little bit more fun because I know I can and so it's about compartmentalizing actually Mm. Uh, that's something my housemate was talking about last night just compartmentalizing is really important Um, but again finding releases and 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 also just finding things you love doing yeah and that's maybe why I do all this other stuff because or partly why I do all this other, other stuff because it keeps me engaged with so many other things other than just people's problems yeah Cool. That's, um, yeah, that's probably an answer that I've spoken to a few people before about this idea of people who've done intense work and what they, and, and often they talk about, uh, yeah, you know, talking to people about it, not trying to take their pro- other people's problems on too much. Mm. And, it, and it happens a lot in the not-profit world as well, where you're working with vulnerable communities and um, it's similar things. And But I think what you, you talked about, about detaching and making sure that you still live your life mm. and can enjoy your life without being burdened too much by the problems of those that you have witnessed. The other thing is, you you know, I'm choosing to do this. I'm not like being forced to hear someone complain all day, you know. I'm choosing. So there's a a reason. There's a a purpose that I have in this and there's a why that I'm doing it for. And that why kind of spurs me on to also be able to appreciate that I can take this stuff on and it doesn't burden me. Now, that's not to say that I don't sometimes get stressed by the things that I hear or that I don't sometimes feel like an emotional baggage is is attached to me that I don't really want. But when that happens, it's about reflecting, you know, like I said, like to reflect on yourself going, am I, have I got not enough space here? And if I am full, um, what can I do to sort of let go of some steam? Cool. I want to, I want to chat. I know, I know that you, have done an amazing, amazing work about... Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just not going to compliment you. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can't. Uh, you can't. Uh, you can't. But I do want to talk about um, the, the thesis that you wrote. Um, can you give us a 25-second <coughs> summary? I know that's yeah, probably yeah, the hardest yeah. thing no, to do no, after no, you've no. a thesis, yeah. um, about what, what, it, what was it, mm. and then I'll ask a couple of questions about it. All right, my thesis started as a question of what is the difference between cultures in the way they understand trauma and it finished really kind of conceiving the role of interpretation in the way that we interpret something actually creates what it is for us. So for example, the way we un- the way we interpret a trauma experience actually creates the way it impacts us. The best way I can explain that is there's a quote by this guy called Barry Schwartz who says human nature is much more created than it is discovered. In other words, you know, people go and find themselves mm. when they go traveling. It's like a thing. You go and find yourself. But you don't go and find yourself. You go and create yourself. Mm. And in the same way with mental health, you can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. So the way we interpret it, the way we understand it, actually creates what it is for us as opposed to us really finding it. It doesn't just come naturally. It's something that the way that we sort of perceive it from almost like an objective standpoint, like look at that experience, that's what it ends up actually being for us. Yeah, and it's kind of this idea that, um, look, I specifically looked at trauma, um, the experience of trauma, comparing two different 
um, groups, Holocaust survivors and Sudanese refugees, and seeing how they understood their trauma experience. And at the end of the day, they understood things um, on some level the same and on some level different. So there are similarities in the way that we understand mental health, and those similarities are the things that we need to latch onto and go this is perhaps the way we can understand mental health. But then we also need to consider what's the best way to interpret mental health so that we promote recovery rather than promote disease, illness, there's a problem with you, that kind of thing. So is there um, some kind of conclusion that you got to that if um, another community or cultural group suffered from trauma, um, i.e. genocide or mass atrocity or something occurring in their community, mm. that you would say, all right, the best way, now now your trauma, your situation has ended, the genocide has concluded, um, there's a path forward now. Would you have an answer as to what the best path forward would yeah, be? Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so there's, a, there's another poem that I love by this woman called Maya Angelou. If you watch the Olympics, she's um, you would have seen this iPhone commercial where um, it's her speaking in the background. And basically she says, we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. So the very f- we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. Okay. Right? Uh, it's called The Human Family. It's a great poem. Anyway, she um, she says uh, that the, the whole idea behind that is that, um, sorry, coming back to your question. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Bit of a tangent. But a tangent. Um, is that there are similarities in the way that people recover from trauma. But you have to consider the differences as well. So it has to be very contextual-based. So if you have another group that's traumatised, we have to consider the way they understand things like traumatic memory. What does that mean to them? Or things like identity. What does that mean to them? Or things like um, their relationship with the social world. How do they perceive it? But once you understand that, then one of the commonalities I found, one of the likenesses, is that both groups expressed having a purpose in... We talked about meaning in life. Both groups expressed having a purpose in their future generations and in stopping the trauma from happening again. So when you think about what, and and meaning in life then, that purpose contributes to a greater quality of life. So when you think about traumatized groups when they're coming out of their trauma, one thing that can help them deal with their trauma is obviously in a contextualized way, understanding how they can help, what establishments we can put in place, what institutions we can do to help them create that purpose of stemming future their, that trauma from happening again because it helps them deal with the anxiety of the trauma, helps them right. deal with fear that it's going to happen again. So more specifically, when, they, when, when you talk about ensuring that trauma doesn't happen again, mm. is that, that specific to their community group? Yeah. Or is it a more universalistic? No, it's 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 generally specific to kind of the trauma that they experience. So, for example, the Holocaust survivors. I mean, Holocaust survivors are afraid, and you know, I mean, this is a weird thing to say, but Holocaust survivors are afraid of a Muslim takeover. You mm-hmm. know, so for them, like working to establish, um, you know, they talk about not wanting something like the Holocaust happening again. So, working to establish, um, teach the younger generations, all that kind of thing is the way that they try and prevent it. Sudanese refugees want this conflict in Sudan to stop. That's their purpose. That's what they think is so important. So, working with them to create groups to facilitate that purpose, or um, you know, I suppose advocacy groups or um, establishments that help um, promote the end of conflict in Sudan, it's so important for them. So, Do you think that part of that is that they feel like they are using their experience, they're not sort of letting the experience or the tragedy 
happening vein, that there's, some, yeah. there's something that is happening yeah, without it. Yeah, for sure. It. Well, the thing to remember is that once these traumas, what, what trauma is partly is this idea that trauma um, will stay with you forever. Mm. It, it leaves an indelible mark on memory. You can't forget it. If, you, if something traumatic happens to you, you just can't forget it. So if you can't forget it, what are you going to do with it? Mm. You can sit with it, but you can sit with it for so long. So these groups have become quite resilient in their ability to use that memory for a purpose. Um, Sudanese refugees talk about um, trying to forget, um, and they do that by focusing on the future. Right. Holocaust survivors remember, and they do, and they use that memory to um, talk to younger generations. So okay. there's still a, there's a place for memory, but the memory is contextualized. Mm. So that's what I'm talking about. You have to think about the differences between groups. At the end of the day, it's just about helping each group um, fulfill that purpose that they have to stem the future anxiety around, you know, that event happening mm. again. I want to hold on to the idea of memory for a second. Um, we mentioned before about how you go on um, March of Living, you're very passionate about March of Living, uh, you've been how many times now to Poland? Uh, twice. Twice, and you're going for a third time in a yeah, couple of months. Yeah. Uh, and you've committed a lot of time and hours to the process of of leading March of Living and being involved in it. Is there something about memory for you and, and, and the Holocaust and um, using what's happened in our past uh, that, that has got you so interested in March of Living um, or, or so committed yeah, you know, my mum is a history teacher as well, so she, she like, you know, she, she taught you? She did. Yeah, how'd you go? I did okay. You, Not as well as I think she would have liked. But. Uh, okay, but she's, she's a good teacher. She does well. She's very good teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry that you didn't get the marketing one. Um, <laughs> basically, uh, she, you know, so that sort of remembering is part of my family a little bit. Um, my grandmother's a Holocaust survivor. She's written a book. I think the thing that... Um, the thing that come, takes me back to Marshall living every time is that... <clears throat> It's not so, I mean, it is the memory, but it's not so, it's not just about memory. Like I said, with these other, with these traumatized groups, it's about what can you do with the memory, you know? I mean, the memory is there. Those concentration camps could be run, started running tomorrow if you go there and you see it's all active still, um, or it could be active still. But I think for me, it's all about using that memory to help kids see what's going on today, you know? Is something like what happened back then? happening today and the answer is yes it's happening in so many places around the world and then going okay well we remember what happened so because it's happening now what can we do mm. and that's what martial living for me is about it's about recognizing that there are so many things that are happening today that can be likened to I'm not saying it's the same but can be likened to the holocaust and when that stuff happens, what do you do about it so mm. that we can use that memory in a different way? Even things like bullying in school, you know, discrimination um, in so many different ways. What can you do when you see that? Mm. You know, do you, are you an innocent bystander? Right. You know, is an innocent bystander even a thing? Um, and so it's about trying to spur kids on in that sense to do something different today. Yeah. And I, I, I've said this to you before and I said that at the same event that we went on that we spoke out a couple of weeks ago um, when you spoke before me that I think March Living does have that profound impact on people. It definitely did for me in that it does. It makes you think about like, well, sh like, how can I possibly go here, see this, be devastated by this, but then completely turn a blind eye to other things happening around the world. And I, 
I think that Marcellini does have that capacity to open up people's eyes and think about their role of either standing by or standing up. And yeah, when I was when I was on March in 2012, I was preaching all this stuff, and I looked at myself and I'm like, what am I doing? You know, like, am I doing enough? And that kind of spurred me on to do this um, research into trauma. Like, you know, at that point, I hadn't figured out what my research was going to be, and I was thought, you know, the refugee issue is such a big issue. How can I help? In what in what in psychology, and so I thought maybe look at trauma, how how to understand groups that are traumatized, and how can we help them? So it, it's really like it's a pre-transformational trip, yeah. and not just for the kids, but for anyone that goes. Can I just tell you one thing that just blew my mind? Yeah, um, I'll just tell you a story. It was this <clears throat> one this one guy had um, this rock that he wanted to um, put on his grandfather's cabin. Uh, it was, we were in Auschwitz, it was grey clouds everywhere, dark day. And he wanted to put this rock in his, his grandfather's cabin um, in Auschwitz. And so what we did was we went over to the fence, we saw like where all the cabins were and we couldn't get in. It was locked. So I pry the fence open, he creeps through the, the gate and I just see amidst this sea of cabins where people were, were living, you know, they were in, these, in this um, death camp or work camp, this guy, this young 16-year-old Jewish boy in this white long sleeve T-shirt bolting down through the middle of the cabins and he finds his grandfather cabin, puts the rock back on, a grey cloud, like I said, and he bolts back. And you just see this bright, white, young 16-year-old boy amidst this place which is just mm. basically hell on earth, you know, dark, grey. And it, it was that contrast of the, yeah. the bright in the dark the light and the dark and the, you know, it was just this amazing experience that made me go, you know, there, there can be so much wrong with this world, but at the same time, there's so much good in it as well. Mm. And we need to sort of harness that. Yeah. And I think March Lemming does a great job at talking about the light and the dark and, um, the importance of using that memory for some sort of positive purpose. Mm. Um, mm. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really powerful story. Spe- speaking of which I do want to, I don't want to go without talking about lives of others and, and giving a, a nice plug, but also I do I do have a couple of questions I want to talk about. For the benefit of our audience, uh, it's it's a it's an Instagram page, it's a website where um, profiles of show are shown of individuals who recount their own a story about their own mental health. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there's a survey that we have that's linked on our Instagram. Anyone can click on that survey. They go to the survey to ask them six questions about a mental health experience. They fill it out. They send a, a selfie to us, and we post it. And the purpose is... The purpose is there are, there are a couple of purposes. The first is to normalise the conversation around mental health, to help people realise that, um, you know, mental health, having issues with your mental health is quite a normal thing. Mm. Right? Second is to connect people that feel isolated in their experience so that people see that they're not necessarily the only ones going through what they're going through. Third is to create a more empathic, wider community. So when people see these stories, when people read these stories, that they're like not as stigmatized yeah. and you know they're more understanding of their mental health experience and i suppose the fourth is just to provide a space for people to express themselves in a way that is not necessarily curated like it is on facebook where you go i i was at this party or hey this is how good i am or hey this is how cool right. I, the thing i did was but it's more about the darker side of life which can be like we were just talking about really bright at the same yeah. time yeah and i think um, for me, I think such an ama- the reason why it's it's so good is because social media is of usually used this veil of um, of casting people's lives as perfect, 
and people put up what they want people to see about their lives. But I think using social media to expose vulnerability rather than the opposite, which is this sense of invincibility, um, is using social media for a purpose that it's almost never used for. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you hear people debate the whole time around whether social media or in the internet or whatever is a good thing or a bad thing and how it disconnects us at the same time whilst we're feeling we're mm. connected to everyone, we're also disconnected. And and at the, at the end of the day, the best arguments I've heard about it is we choose how we use social media. So if we use social media in a way that um, shows who we really are and connects people with different sides of us, then that's a fantastic thing that we can use it for. So social media doesn't have to be this thing that disconnects us. It can be a tool that helps connect us in a really amazing way. So I think, yeah, I agree with you. That's a really important thing that people can show different sides to themselves. Cool. Running out of time here. So just want to go with um, maybe one or two more questions. Um, I just want to know what are some things that you you read or are reading uh, that... Am I you up here? You don't I don't read. read. <laughs> oh god, I haven't read in He's ages. So... I've been reading. I've been so one track minded. Like I, fin- I finished um, writing um, my thesis a week and a half ago. Right. So Muscle I time. have. Thank. Thank you. I've. <laughs> you don't know how much. Co- uh, how much I cop when I say that, but yeah, okay, um, yeah, you're so arrogant, whatever. Okay, <laughs> but really, like I finished a week and a half ago, and I um. I was reading so specifically on so many different things throughout them. But I can tell you about what I've enjoyed reading throughout my life. But, you know, recently, over the last week and a half especially, I've just shut off because, you know, once you read so much, you just... (laughs) I should have run the questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but, but what's what's that question? I'll try and answer it anyway in a different way. (laughs) Um, No, what I'm sort of trying to to understand is, I guess, you know, for you, it's it's a a little bit different because you've written a, a thesis... Everyone, Jared Ryan, thesis. <laughs> um, but oh, uh, just in case you didn't yeah, know, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, doctorate, um, yeah, cool. <laughs> but trying to sort of get to get to the bottom of you know what, what are uh, some people read purely for, for for entertainment or enjoyment purposes, and other people um, uh, read for for I guess self development or learning purposes. Yeah. And so what I was trying to get is what are the things that you want to learn about? And so maybe now that you're finished, what are the things you're looking to that you think, oh, I really want to learn about X? Yeah, I think for me, I um, I look at it in a few ways. I, I don't necessarily read that much for entertainment purposes. Yeah. Um, I generally read to learn something, um, and that's just the way it's been for me over the last you know five, six years. Um, I do think it's important though to read every now and then for entertainment purposes, but I do like to read books that I feel like I'm going to get something out of. One of my favorite books, for example, The Unbearable Lightness of Being is, is a novel. It's a fictional story, but there's this really beautiful uh, undertone which talks about the way you can think about decisions and making decisions, which I really like. So, you know, I think I like to have both in, in sometimes. But in terms of what I'm looking to learn, I think, uh, you know, I, th- I want to keep learning about psychology, about um, the way people think, about um, what helps people be happy, what helps people be positive, what helps people do things in their life, be motivated, that kind of thing. Um, but also, I want to expand a little bit as mm. well. I don't want to stick to just psychology. There's so much out there that it's very hard to sort of narrow narrow that down to just one or two things. So. Um, psychology is easy for me because it's what I love, but at the same time, expanding to different yeah. things. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll leave with one last question. And yeah. it's, it's a it's a cheeky one because it's a double question. <laughs> um, what is it about our community 
um, that when you say our community, uh, I mean I mean the Jewish community, but maybe you know you can frame that as a community that you're a part of or yeah. um, your version of what you see as our Jewish community. Yeah. Uh, what is it that you really love about the community? But what and and what are the, what are the, any of the challenges or something that you'd like to change about our community? And the reason I ask you this specifically um, is because. Um, you've sort of been a part of so many different elements of our community, whether it's a football club or a March Living Trip or, or these different elements. What is it that you've seen from different spheres of our community that you like and, and don't like? Um, well, it probably just comes back to the things that I was talking about at the very start of this interview in terms of the things that I like. Um, when you see the Jewish community, when you see our community, or when you see my group of my community, you can't help but be blown away, I think, by the love that there is, the support that there is, the compassion that there is for people. So I think um, where it doesn't matter what segment of the community you're a part of, you see that in mm. so many different ways. Um, at the same time, I think community in general um, is, is a wonderful thing, but it also has the flip, you know. I mean, community means that there is, or at times, this insular look at, at things, and we need to perhaps expand the way we see things um, in terms of maybe... Um, and some organisations do this really well, but working with organisations from different communities. Mm. You know, perhaps we are a little bit insular in the way we approach things because we have our, um, you know, very uh, nice upper-class view of things, which is which is great because it works for us, but perhaps we don't have enough perspective, mm. wider perspective. Um, and that happens with, I think, community in general. You know, the, the amazing thing is that there's always, in a tight community support, but then there's also insularity because yeah. of the nature of community as well. Jared White, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you so much podcast. for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, there you have it. To all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed it and got value out of it, please subscribe and please share with your friends and family. We hope to see you back here soon.